the revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. The U.S. economy slowed down significantly this late summer and fall, with the spread of the Delta variant causing supply chain disruptions across the globe. At the same time, suppliers and retailers saw spikes in prices for raw materials, manufacturing, and shipping, and suffered from labor shortages along with rising inflation rates. Despite these dramatic shifts to the economy and supply chain, experts say the country should be looking forward to brighter days ahead, even as the climate crisis looms. With us to talk about the issue is Nick Vias, USC Assistant Professor of Clinical Data Sciences and Operations. He spoke with Digital Villages, Leilani Elbano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. The economy has taken a hit over the summer, with U.S. GDP annual rates falling to a low 2% from July to September. How does the coronavirus and the global supply chain crisis contribute to the economic slump, and are there better days ahead? So the disruption of our global supply chain management, which began at the height of the COVID in March 2020 for us, has continued ever since. And the contraction that we see in the economy, largely due to the disrupted supply chains, we have issues from the supply side, as well as on the demand side. And both of those issues are causing incredible inflation across the supply chain, and thus the shortages and subsequent crisis impacting our global output. And do we see rosier days ahead, as some predict? Well, unfortunately, I would say the rosy days are ahead, but not right away. I think we are still in about for six to nine months minimum before the entire system of our global supply chain stabilizes in a state of equilibrium. My estimation that some of the prices will come down. However, we will see much greater cost structure because likelihood of uh, the labor price that we have made adjustments to attract uh, labor participation will probably not come back some of the services that has raised the prices because of the crisis will probably come back slightly, but not at the pre-pandemic level. So I think we'll see the higher cost inflation will continue to linger around for at least the next several years. Wow, that doesn't sound too rosy. Unfortunately, not because this is a massive. We're talking about the pandemic of the century and an entire supply chain being disrupted. So it's unfortunately has taken a huge toll across the network. Although COVID wreaked havoc on the global supply chain, was it the cause of all of our problems or did it just shine a light on the vulnerabilities? So COVID exposed 
expose some of the structural deficiencies that we have had for the last three to four decades. So apparently what has happened, in, and this started in the 80s, that we created uh, this long string of supply chain, uh, and, and in specific, not only the long string, but very single country or single region dependent supply chain. And what that allowed us to do over the last 30, 40 years, so we, we reduced the cost. We, we were able to mass produce things at the cost, in some cases, the sustainability and the resiliency. And what COVID did that is to expose those structural deficiencies to see that resiliency should have been in the forefront of our global trade as well as sustainability, and we just didn't pay attention to that. And so when you're talking about these long string of support chains, are you talking about from the U.S. to China? Is that the main network that we were looking at? That is correct. So over the last 30, 40 years, we became very dependent on China or greater China region to provide us large set of our consumption pattern. And not only us as the U.S., but also the majority of the world. So China ended up becoming, you know, world's factory, world's large manufacturing hub. And unfortunately, that took the eye from everyone, including companies in the U.S., to not consider resiliency as seriously as they should have. And we paid the price during the COVID crisis. So if you're saying that we've kind of known this since the 80s, this obviously wasn't a surprise. Indeed, the signs were there. So if you think about the previous pandemic, from the natural disaster, we sort of curtailed around it because it wasn't as widespread as COVID happened to be. COVID disrupted the supply chain across 158 countries and brought the entire supply chain to its knees. So that probably never was modeled into the equation by countries and companies likewise to think about the resiliency of that level. So we were caught Surprise, but we knew this ahead of time. The risk of this degree was always there. We just didn't factor into it. You know, people have this vague idea in their heads of what the global supply chain looks like. What is your definition of that term? And are you talking about human labor as being part of this supply chain? Well, absolutely. So if we want to think about the global supply chain, right? So think about any product that you're consuming. And then you start to think about the product design. And then from the design to acquisition of raw material. And then having those raw materials shipped to the place of manufacturing. Getting that manufacturing done in the packaging and what we call the consolidation. All of these things happens in the front end of the supply chain. Then in the middle, you had to move those packaged manufactured goods to the country that you want to consume in. Once it gets to the port or airport or the border, how do you then bring it in and ultimately take it to the customer? So when you think about consuming anything, when you open that box, there is this entire supply chain in the front end, the middle, and the back end has to be executed so that it shows up at your door when promised, at the cost that you are promised, and the quality and the service. So that is basically what orchestrates the global supply chain management in a nutshell. And then, of course, you need the workers to do all of the work. 
big piece of our supply chain is still driven by workforce. So the labor participation is huge. So when we talk about the disruptions from COVID, that was a huge factor. The labor participation because of the COVID and restrictions and factories were just shut down. And we're still seeing that today. We're seeing different COVID restrictions in the various countries and locations. Indeed. Indeed, if you look at it just several weeks ago, Vietnam had a huge spike on the Delta variant, and they ended up shutting down for almost six to eight weeks. So you think about when you shut down a manufacturing facilities in any given country or the region, it's not that you can come back six, eight weeks later and flip the switch on and you start to function back to the regular capacity. Instead, it takes several weeks for it to accumulate all the essential raw material again, labor schedule and capacity back from zero to 100%. It's a several weeks before it actually gets back to its normal capacity. So it's a pretty long process. And you think about this various disruption and aftershocks that system has been absorbing since March last year, we just have not caught any break. Okay, so you did mention the Delta variant. Well, the coronavirus is something that the U.S. has more or less learned to live with the past two years. But then came the Delta variant. How was the Delta variant a game changer in terms of people's spending powers and ability to work? So if we think about the Delta variant, the system took a big shock during the initial COVID exposure, which was in March 2020. And then the subsequent Delta, which really started in Asia and you know, worked its way towards the, uh, Europe and Americas, continued to create aftershocks. But while this aftershocks being absorbed by the system on the supply side, consumers were not spending money on travel, entertainments, restaurants, and so forth. So what we saw in the first half of this year, the personal consumption in the discretionary spending shot up by 28%. And that created an additional shock into the global supply chain system on the demand side. So while we were coping with all the supply side disruption, now all of a sudden you have this artificial spike on the demand side causing scarcity, price inflation, labor shortages, equipment shortages, other resources that you need to have your supply chain function just could not absorb this level of shock. And that really was the difference, right? That Because it seemed like we were, I don't know, on the upswing with vaccinations and reopening, and then you had this delta. That is indeed. The data suggest that because we continue to they sheltered or travel limited. Countries were not opening their borders or they were opening with some restrictions. So consumers decided to just use that extra cash into personal consumption. And when you spend more on your personal consumption, well, somebody has to manufacture those goods, get it packaged, get it shipped, and get it to you. But the system just wasn't ready for to be able to absorb that additional demand. Oh, so I see. So as people were beginning just to stay home, they wanted more things. And then so that shot up the demand. That is indeed the case, right? So it's, it's good for the economy in some sense, but guess what? 
system has not been able to recalibrate itself, and all of a sudden you have this demand-side shocks and aftershocks that we have to absorb, it just created additional stress that we cannot handle. And then now we are entering the holiday season. I mean, I know it's only around Halloween, but now we're seeing this swing up for demand. What are we seeing right now in terms of shopping centers and the ability for companies to get their products to the shelves? I think they're facing a tremendous headwind because you think about the congestion. We have a bottleneck at the port. We have a bottleneck at, uh, on the land side, being able to pull the cargo out of the port. We don't have enough drivers. We don't have enough chassis in the trailer. We don't have enough capacity in the warehouse. So when you start to think about this entire back end of our supply chain, it's fully constrained at this point. And we are in the middle of our peak season. And you think about the Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas, and all of these things are lurking around in the near horizon without having system fully functional. I think that's going to cause a tremendous chaos and some, some disappointment along the way. Oh, in terms of people getting their products? Well, absolutely. I mean, we saw Apple and Amazon already gave the guidance the fourth quarter, missing the numbers on the target, because they know that the supply side disruption and some of the challenges on the supply chain side will not be as rosy as what they had forecast in the beginning of the year. Well, just going back a step, we're seeing how the supply chain crisis is upending manufacturing. Can you tell us about the shortage of semiconductors, what semiconductors are, and what kind of impact that is to have this shortage happening at this time? Yeah, so the way I would actually articulate the semiconductors, so think about the chip. Now, if you think about the chipset, it's not just in our cell phone or our TV. Right now, the chipsets are in our car is nothing but the mini computer with uh, quite a few chipsets that actually control all the control systems in our car, appliances, entertainment centers. I mean, you name it. Our world has evolved with this digital dependency that everything requires a chipset. And these chipsets are very high-end manufacturing process. And it's primarily and predominantly is driven in three or four countries. So when the raw materials going into those countries could not process enough to supply the current demand, and on the top we had a spike in demand, we just ran out of everything in the pipeline. And therefore we're seeing a huge shortages in the car, used cars now, in some cases are selling almost 30, 40% higher than the blue book value. And, and in the near term forecast is that we're going to continue to have these challenges for at least six to 12 months. Now, in terms of the, the human toll that it's taking, we're seeing that companies like General Motors has temporarily laid off 1,500 workers at its one plant because of the lack of chips. Are there other human tolls that we are really hearing about in the news? Well, I think the companies are really cautious. So they see this huge bottleneck. They know there is a need for the labor. There is a lot of open jobs, but there is very little labor participation. What companies are faced with is this huge dilemma in terms of, do we really think this is going to stay there 
for a long time. So if I were to go and hire a bunch of people, will I be able to sustain that? That's a one part of the quadri that they're dealing with. it. But the other side is, but if I do have the people, but if I continue to struggle with the chipsets and other raw materials, and they've been delayed for weeks at a time, what do I do with my labor? I can't afford to keep them. So now they're taking a cautious approach to cut down and plan for very minimum capacity, the one that they can feel confident to commit to and execute rather than planning for the best case scenario. So yes, I think we see the human toll across the supply chain network, uh, but to some spots, some of the semiconductor is seeing a lot more volatility than the other sectors. There's been a lot of attention put on the lack of truck drivers. What kind of numbers are we looking at? It seems massive. Yeah, indeed. So so if we focus on the truck driver shortages, this is a very old problem for us. In 2016, one of the labor studies I remember reading had said about half a million truck driver shortages by 2025, right? So even if you think about right now, we have about 80,000 drivers that we need in the vicinities of the port just to manage the port transactions. We just don't have, and this is not something that anybody with a regular driver license can start to drive the truck. I mean, it's a very skilled profession, and also it's not too attractive for the new generation to be part of it. Although one can make living full and meaningful wage being a truck driver, it is not something that we have been able to attract larger labor participations for a decade. So this is the issues that we have not figured out, and this is true across not only U.S., but the Western Europe faces the same hurdle. So moving on to the other issue right now, big labor issue, we've heard about the great resignation, people quitting. How much of an impact is that having on this whole supply chain? I think that's the big reason why we see this bottlenecks across because as a country, we have deployed close to $2.7 trillion in stimulus money, and rightfully so. And during the last two years, there wasn't much of anything that you can do to spend some of the money. So savings over last year has been the highest in the last 15 years. And I believe the COVID has also given by being with the family and staying home and seeing the life differently has all of a sudden created this new paradigm where people are thinking about the work-life balance differently. They're thinking about the, uh, the whole lifestyle in a different way. And, and because of the cushion of their savings, personal savings, they're willing to actually take a risk and commit to saying, hey, I'm resigning and I'm going to do something that I feel purposeful with and and pursue that. So that is a huge paradigm shift, but also it creates a huge challenge on industry that's already struggling to attract the labor participation. So I think we have this, this what I call the perfect storm in all aspects of global supply chain, and that's why we are here. Now, one of the reasons why people are even caring or thinking about the global supply chain crisis is because that is used as a reason for why they aren't getting their products on time. It's not on the shelves. 
And also this price sticker shock that they see, this massive inflation. What is the connection between this supply chain crisis and this huge inflation issue? Well, there's a direct correlation. I think the disruption, the blind demand out of balance is what's driving the price inflation. So you think about the container coming from Shanghai to Los Angeles. It has actually seen tenfold increase. So if you used to use about $3,000 to bring that container, in a peak, actually, it ran up to about $17,000, $18,000. And even then, you cannot find the capacity to move the container. So we are seeing a huge inflation uh, across the supply chain, both on the water side, the land side, the air side, and within the distribution networks. And that certainly will continue to put the pressure on the consumer's spending, albeit we don't see the demand slowing down just yet. At some point, I do anticipate if the inflation were to continue to keep up at the rate that it has over the last several months, that we should see the tapering of the demand. But unfortunately, as of yet, that is not the case. How does the supply chain crisis reflect the larger problem of large spread out networks? And will we be seeing a shift to these smaller regional networks? I believe if there was a right time in human history for us to look at the supply chain differently, the time is now. We were, for the last four years, way too focused on the cost. And all we did is try to optimize the cost uh, and disregard a lot of other things that we should have paid attention to it, such as the resiliency and sustainability. We just had the meeting with the G20. Our environment, our ecological crisis at hand is significant. Uh, just thinking about the supply chain disruption, what that has caused to the human civilization, that is significant. So if we were to look at all of those things together, the right answer is how do we decouple our supply chain from this long single country dependent to much more customer-centric, regional. So they're independent but interdependent. So then we need to focus on those shorter supply chain that provides us the resiliency, certainly provides us much less carbon footprint than what we've been used to the last 40 years. And yes, it may cost us slightly more, but overall, if we, up, if we work with what I call the triple bottom line, that's the way forward, and time is now for us to do that. So paint us a picture of that. So instead of getting a certain product from China, would we then be thinking about establishing networks in places like Mexico or places that are also closer to the U.S., and then the carbon footprint would be lower because of the shorter distances? That, that is correct. So I think the idea would be we have to be very careful. What we're saying is that decoupling does not equal to deglobalization. Rather, decoupling basically means if they're close to the customer, they are much more balanced in terms of the cost, uh, the resiliency, agility, and sustainability. So we have to start to think about these things a little bit more holistically. And then that could be that we bring some things home. I think the high capital intensive manufacturing would actually come to the shores of the U.S. The mid-level 
manufacturing could be in Mexico. Mexico is a huge part, trading partner. It's right, right next door to us. Imagine being able to take advantage of that infrastructure, the Canada, the Dominican Republic, some of the Latin American countries. And the similar cluster could be in Europe, Asia, and Africa, and other places. So this would be sort of these clusters, independent, original clusters, that they may have interconnectivity as a backup, but primarily go for those clusters to be in a shorter distances uh, with a less of a carbon footprint and less of a threat of any future pandemic or geopolitical threat. I would think it is the avoidance of higher costs that this wasn't established in the first place. In other words, they wanted to do these kind of longer distances with China because of the lower manufacturing and labor costs. And yes and no. So let me, let me actually quantify why do I say yes and no. I think yes, in a sense, the cost was the primary sort of a motivational factor. However, you simply cannot pollute your environment or you can't just dis- dispose the water into the sewage system. As those rules became tough and the penalties became higher, countries started to go into the longer supply chain where they can get away with some of this regulatory burden. So the cost was the one thing, but they also were looking to have this relaxed environment where they were not subjected to tougher environmental practices or regulatory burden. And those were the reasons what motivated in 80s, 90s, and up to now, this outsourcing in in, in a big way. So you have some of these experts saying, you know what? The supply chain issues will gradually fade away. Some of them are predicting a year from now. What is your thought? Do you think it's just going to go away, or should the government be doing more to step in to help the situation? So I think system at some point will come to the state of equilibrium. However, government need to and should be doing a lot more. Biden administration has taken an initiative to identify a 90-day review of supply chain and 365. But Biden administration simply just cannot manage the global supply chain, the resiliency, the sustainability, and, and, and create the competitiveness by just sitting uh, in the White House and try to regulate the policies. But this needs to truly have to have broader conversation in terms of what is that future supply chain needs to be and how do we safeguard my concern is not just the pandemic or the natural disaster, but the, simply this geopolitical tension. I mean, we see right now, imagine we talked about semiconductor. If China were to take over Taiwan, for instance, uh, what implication Taiwan plays huge role in semiconductor uh, supply chain? What, what is the likelihood of that disruption and its impact on supply chain? So, so that's just a, sort of an example of how uh, this conversation needs to be in a very much more holistic way where public-private uh, partnership and allies uh, with the free trade agreements all needs to have a very productive dialogue and think outside the box and, and don't miss this opportunity that we have from the lessons learned to the COVID and just be status quo. So there have been some 
ideas being thrown out there by media. Tell me what your thoughts on some of these solutions to alleviate some of the problems. We have things like changing monetary policy or getting the National Guard to move products, as well as Biden is trying to address this, unclogging the shipping ports. Any thoughts on any of these three solutions? Yeah, so I, I look at this problem space in two dimensions, the short term and the long term. Short term, we talked about expanding the flow-through capacity from the port and all the way down to the consumer. And we need to do everything in our power for private-public partnerships to sort of expand that pipeline to further absorb the volume out of the port. So that's the one thing. And we're, you know, we're doing both ports, Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach is doing that. They're starting tomorrow, November 1st, they're going to actually start to penalize those containers that sit longer than their allowed time by $100 a day. That's a short term. Long term, we need to look at it and say, if infrastructure of U.S., a largest consuming economy, why companies choose to go outside and not use the supply chain infrastructure over the last 30, 40 years? And the answer is that we have not made investment in our infrastructure. We have ignored the fact for the last three, four decades, and this is a problem on both sides of our aisles and administrations, that they've simply just kicked that can as far and as long as they can down the street. So now we need to look at it. How do we build a robust infrastructure, both physical as well as digital, for the companies to come back and create the resilience? Because some of the key commodities, key items, you simply cannot allow those to uh, be disrupted and create a major crisis at home. And last question, what is our future with upcoming climate change disasters and other major disasters if the government does not take these steps you recommended, as well as other steps, to improve our global supply chain situation? In my view, it will be catastrophic. If we think that we've saw the shortages of the toilet paper and tissue papers and, uh, you know, the car shortages and chip shortages. This is just a short trailer to the long two-hour movie that we're about to watch go down for the next 20, 30 years from now, right? Sustainability should no longer be viewed as nice to do. It needs to be part of your supply chain design. It needs to be part of your front-end process, and it needs to be, be in a front mirror of every organization, small, mid-size, and large. And government needs to really incentivize companies and consumers both to really start to pay attention to these things because we are seeing ample evidence that any large, long-term damage that we will create or the environmental impact of our consumption and supply chains, if we don't address them now, we might miss the boat and the consequences would be very dire and maybe not even reversible. Well, thanks for joining the show. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Nick Vias, Executive Director of the USC Marshall Center for Global Supply Chain Management. He spoke with Digital Villages' Leilani Elbano. 
That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you online. online.